0: This is Our People and Mother Earth on KWSO. Longtime tribal attorney Howie Arnett sat down with KWSO in 2015 to tell us about the Treaty of 1855. It's interesting, I think, to think about the 1855 Treaty as a kind of a continuum of, of American policy regarding Indian affairs from the very first days of the, uh, of the New Republic after the Revolutionary War. And even before, all of the European countries that came to North America engaged in treaty making with the the native tribes. Uh, France did it. uh, Great Britain did it. Holland did it. Spain did it. They all did it. And they did it because they recognized that tribes were sovereign, independent, political bodies. And they were just like, from a legal standpoint, the, the nation states of Europe and the way the nation states of Europe deal with one another in international law is through treaties, international treaties, which are legally enforceable binding agreements between independent nations. And so when they first came to the, the European countries, first came to North America and encountered tribes, they needed to secure the peace. The Europeans did. They needed to acquire land with the consent of the uh, the tribes they encountered. They needed political and military allies, if the countries were in competition as Britain and France were for, for, a, for 50 years, they were fighting in Europe and they were fighting in North America, uh, treaties was the vehicle, the legal vehicle they used. And so from the 1600s, even earlier, uh, treaties between European countries and later after the Revolutionary War the United States was the mechanism by which the, uh, uh, the European governments and the successor government of the American and Canadian governments too – Engaged in relations, political and legal relations with tribes. And the 1855 treaty with the, uh, what were called the tribes of Middle Oregon of June 25, 1855, that treaty was part of a, a policy that the federal government had announced in 1854, directing federal representatives in Oregon and Washington Territory to secure agreements with the tribes that they. Uh, were dealing with and that existed in Oregon and Washington Territories, both in the west side of the Cascades in Washington and in Oregon and in the east side of the Cascades and, and even further east into what is now North Idaho and Montana. And Governor Stevens of Washington Territory and Joel Palmer, who was the superintendent of Indian Affairs for Oregon Territory, were the principal agents for the federal government. And so in late 1854 and on in through 1855, they just went around two tribes in western Washington, on the Washington coast, uh, and made treaties with the Quinaults, the Quileutes uh, on the Washington coast, the Macaw at the northwest tip of Washington where Puget Sound, Straits of Juan de Fuca, meet the ocean, along the uh, uh, northern end of the Olympic Peninsula and through Puget Sound, the Point Elliott Treaty, Point No Point Treaty, uh, Macaw Treaty, and uh, Medicine Creek Treaty. Uh, and then went east of the mountains uh, and made treaties with the tribes over there. And of importance to Warm Springs is the Treaty Council that took place in early June of 1855 at Walla Walla. It's called the Walla Walla Treaty Council. And over three or four days, Governor Stevens and Joel Palmer from Washington and Oregon Territories negotiated and executed treaties with the Yakima the Nez Perce and the Umatilla, the Umatilla, Cayuse, and Walla Walla Indians in Confederation. Uh, and there were folks from, from the Middle Oregon tribes, from uh, what were called the Walla Walla tribes, or Sahaptan, Ichiskeen, we call the language today, uh, people from uh, further down the river on the Oregon side that were at Walla Walla and witnessed what was going on. And two weeks later, Joel Palmer uh, came down the Columbia. And what is now the Dalles uh, arranged to have all of the tribes and bands on the Oregon side of the Columbia downstream from the people he had just negotiated treaties with at Walla Walla, assembled them, and over three days negotiated and executed the treaty with the tribes of middle Oregon on June 25th, 1855. And so the Warm Springs Treaty, we call it the Warm Springs Treaty today, was one of about a dozen Northwest treaties um, there's only one other that's like it in Oregon, and that's the Umatilla Treaty also from the Walla Walla Treaty Council with the Nez Perce Treaty, the Yakima Treaty, the treaties in western Washington. Um, and all, even though the Warm Springs Treaty is similar, it's not identical to the, uh, to the other treaties, um, all of the treaties in the Pacific Northwest uh, from Puget Sound, uh, Yakima, Nez Perce, Umatilla, and Warm Springs are unique from a national standpoint. In one particular respect, and that is the express reservation of off-reservation fishing rights and hunting rights, uh, which most of the treaties throughout the rest of the country don't have. Uh, one exception is the Great Lakes. Uh, the tribes in Michigan, Wisconsin, and West Con- and uh, Minnesota, uh, Chippewa, Ojibwe people, reserved in their treaties off-reservation uh, rights to... Uh, hunt and fish, uh, harvest wild rice, and, and other traditional foods. But other than the Great Lakes area and the Pacific Northwest, uh, dozens of other treaties around the country, uh, the rest of them don't have that off-reservation expression of rights. And even some of the, the treaties in, in western Oregon, they either were not ratified uh, for those tribes or if they were ratified by the United States Senate, which is what makes a treaty uh, legally valid and enforceable, they did not reserve express off-reservation rights. So that's the, uh, one of the special features of the, of the Warm Springs Treaty. Uh, and even though the language of the off-reservation, reservation of fishing and hunting rights and grazing and food gathering, berries and, and roots and so on that's in the 1855 Treaty, that language is similar in the Warm Springs Treaty to the other neighboring tribes like Umatilla, Nez Perce, and Yakima. It's not exactly the same. For example, one of the key phrases in the part of the treaty that reserves off-reservation rights is the language that says that the tribe, the signatory tribes, reserve the exclusive right of taking fish in all streams running through and bordering the reservation, which means the Deschutes uh, and uh, the Metolias and all the other streams running through the reservation. It goes on to say the tribal signatories to the treaty reserve the right in common with citizens of the United States to take fish at all usual and custom fishing places outside the reservation, wherever they may be located. And those could be in the ceded area, they could be beyond the ceded area, such as Willamette Falls or the Sandy River and and so on. One of the key phrases in the part of the treaty that reserves off-reservation rights is the language that says that the Tribe, the signatory tribes reserve the exclusive right of taking fish in all streams running through and bordering the reservation, which means the Deschutes uh, and uh, the Metolias and all the other streams running through the reservation. It goes on to say the tribal signatories to the treaty reserve the right in common with citizens of the United States to take fish at all usual and custom fishing places outside the reservation, wherever they may be located, and those could be in the ceded area. They could be beyond the ceded area, such as Willamette Falls or the Sandy River and, and so on. Uh, that same phrase in the other treaties usually uses the term, the reservation is to fish in common with citizens of the territory, not citizens of the United States. So there's a strong argument made that the Worm Springs Treaty has a broader geographic scope by including all citizens of the United States as being subject to the the tribes treaty right which the supreme court has later said is a, is a right to 50% or half of the of the harvestable fish passing the tribes usual custom fishing places and uh, many years ago warm springs used that um, not many years ago the 1980s uh, warm springs used that special language in its treaty to bring a legal claim against the state of alaska for over-harvesting columbia river salmon that would otherwise come back to um, the tribes usual custom fishing places on the Columbia River above Bonneville Dam and above the Dallas Dam and, and so on. If the treaty said citizens of the territory, Alaska would have said, well, we weren't part of Oregon Territory in 1855. We weren't part of Washington Territory. Uh, and we're not part of any territory today, but they are certainly part of the United States. And even though they made the argument, well, we actually were part of Russia in 1855, uh, that argument hasn't gone very far. So. It is it is a legal document. The treaty, uh, like virtually all Indian treaties, were drafted by the United States, drafted by the federal side, uh, the federal party. And there was always a language barrier. Um, that's true of treaties across the country. And the and the courts, the Supreme Court in particular, has recognized the language barrier and, and uh, established certain legal principles that are be used in interpreting treaty language to give the benefit of the doubt regarding ambiguous language to the tribes because of the language barrier and the language barrier for um, the Warm Springs treaty and the other treaties in the Pacific Northwest was usually a double language barrier in that um, the interpreters for the federal uh, representatives, Governor Stevens and Joel Palmer didn't speak kitsch. They didn't speak each is keen. Um, they, and their interpreters didn't, their interpreters spoke the Chinook jargon. And the Chinook jargon is a limited trade vocabulary used by um, tribes around the Northwest of about 300, 350 words. Uh, And the treaty negotiators from uh, the Itchiskeen and Kitsch-speaking bands and tribes, they understood Chinook. So everything's being interpreted from English into Chinook, into Kitsch, and into uh, into Itchiskeen. and a lot is lost in the translation, obviously. And the legal significance of certain words and phrases, all of which are in English and in this written document prepared by the United States, a lot is lost in the translation for sure. These are the agreements that were presented by the federal negotiators and the, and the United States representatives. And it was their job over the period of time that the negotiations took place, the Treaty Council, which was three days in the case of the Warm Springs Treaty, uh, to convince the tribal representatives, uh, the chiefs and headmans who were assembled, to agree and, and sign sign the document. So there was a negotiation, and I think it was well understood by the federal negotiators, even before they got to, to the Warm Springs people in late June of 1855, that these were fishing people. They lived along the Columbia. They lived on the lower reaches of the John Day and the Hood River and the Deschutes River and, and further up those rivers. But fishing was central, absolutely key to their lifestyle, key to their culture, key to their religion, and so on, and and the the salmon themselves. So to try to get the Indian people to sign a treaty which would essentially eliminate their fishing right, their right to fish at those places, those spots, those locations on the Columbia, and move to a a reservation away from the river, away from their fisheries, wouldn't work. They just couldn't sell that. Uh, They wouldn't get anybody to sign that. So that's why they explained, uh, the federal negotiators explained that you sign this treaty and you agree to move to this reservation, you can still come to all your usual fishing places, all the places you've always gone before, you can still go there. This treaty protects that right and reserves that right. And you can go to all your hunting grounds uh, outside the reservation. You can go hunt there. You can go gather, uh, uh, gather berries. You can dig for roots at all your places outside the reservation. Um, after this treaty is signed. And so the way they explained it was to try and sell it, and legally speaking, that's what the treaty says. The language is there, and it's legally enforceable and pre- protected today. You can uh, read the treaty minutes, which are, are, are interesting, very interesting. They, they're they available. The uh, tribe has them here in uh, tribal offices, and uh, it's the, the U.S. negotiators, the federal negotiators are having their their scribe, keep track of and keep minutes, more or less, of the treaty negotiations. And you can tell by reading the minutes, um, there was a lot of resistance at first and actually throughout. But the resistance was mostly over the request to move. Um, These were all people who lived along the Columbia or close to the Columbia and along the Deschutes and along the Hood River, along the John Day River. And they were being asked to move. And they were being asked to move because... The federal negotiator said, you can see the white people are coming. They're already here. This is the Oregon Trail. It's right here. They're coming through all the time. They've been coming through for the last decade or longer. And they're going to be more. And they will keep coming. And if you don't agree to uh, try to protect your traditional lifestyle um, and secure your right to fish at these places by, by moving to a place south of the river where there are no white people, you will lose everything. If you stay here with no treaty, uh, you'll lose everything. You'll be just overrun. And um, there was a lot of resistance to that. But uh, I think uh, eventually the the treaty signers realized that uh, that was probably right. And the negotiation was more focused on where the reservation was going to be. And uh, the treaty minutes reflect that um, when the treaty signers saying, okay, we will consider moving to a reservation south of the river. We don't want to go too far south of the river. And uh, there was initially, um, their proposal was the Thai Valley area. And the government said, no, there are already settlers in the Thai Valley area. That's, that's, that's not going to work. That's unacceptable to us. You've got to have a reservation further south, the Mutton Mountains and south. And there was quite a bit of resistance at uh, that treaty negotiators for the tribe some of them said we haven't even been to that area we maybe go there from deer hunting to time to time but that's that's too far from where we are now but eventually that was what was agreed upon was the the current reservation location the idea was this would be a permanent homeland and no white people would be permitted to go there without the consent of the indian people and this would be uh, for their protection to to create separation between the settlers and the the, they were coming through in the Oregon Trail, some of whom were staying in the area, and the others were moving on to Willamette Valley uh, to create this exclusive-use Indian homeland for the treaty-signing people and their descendants, and that's what the reservation was intended to be and, and still is. The government got uh, what it wanted, and the main thing it wanted, they, it also wanted peace, uh, and it got peace. Um, that was important. But the other thing, and the principal purpose of the 1855 treaties generally was to clear title to land um, the government uh, in the negotiations the first article of the treaty uh, expresses the, the the tribes the tribal signatories area geographic territory which they say this is ours this is the this is the area uh, over which we exercise sovereign political authority, sovereign dominion. It's our land. This is, this is the Warm Springs, Wasco, Itchiskeen, Kitch speaking people's territory. And they described it down the crest of the Cascades from the Columbia to the 44th parallel, south of Bend, east to the Blue Mountains, up the crest of the Blue Mountains to the headwaters of Willow Creek, down Willow Creek to uh, the Columbia River, and then down the Columbia River back to the starting point, which is right about where it's called the Cascade Falls, right where the Dalles Dam is now. And that's about 10 million acres. And the purpose of the treaty from the standpoint of the United States was to secure that land, to uh, get the owners of the land, the tribal members, the leaders of the tribes and bands to relinquish their, their legal aboriginal title, it's called. And that is called seeding title. And that's why it's called the ceded area today. And once the title, uh, the aboriginal title was cleared away because the tribes had ceded their title to that area, then the government is free to issue um, patents to homesteaders without any fear that there's a cloud on the title of Indian land ownership. And that was the principal purpose from the government standpoint, and they got it. Ratification is the action by the United States Senate. It's in the United States Constitution, one of the powers of the United States Senate is to ratify uh, treaties, and the treaty ratification process For an American Indian treaty, like the Treaty with the Tribes of Middle Oregon of June 25, 1855, our treaty, is exactly the same as the ratification of an international treaty between the United States and a foreign power, like the the NAFTA agreement of a decade ago between the United States, Mexico, and Canada on free trade is a treaty. And that had to go through the United States Senate and had to be ratified by two-thirds of the senators, which is a fairly high threshold to get two-thirds of them to agree on anything and it doesn't require approval by the house of representatives and there's also another treaty that an international treaty that lots of folks here are familiar with which is the pacific salmon treaty from uh, uh, the uh, the late uh, eight, about 18 or excuse me 1986 uh, between the united states and canada and there's tribal recognition and participation uh, in that treaty in fact Warm Springs lawsuit against the state of Alaska probably had a lot to do with having that treaty agreed to by the United States, Canada, and Alaska. Uh, and um, so ratification is, is, from a legal standpoint, um, absolutely essential. A treaty does not become legally enforceable uh, as the supreme law of the land until it's been ratified by the United States Senate. And um, there are lots of treaties, particularly a number in western Oregon, that were negotiated, were signed out here in the field, were sent to Washington, and were never ratified. And so from a legal standpoint, they are not legally effective. Tribal Attorney Howie Arnett talking about the Treaty of 1855 on Our People and Mother Earth on 91.9 FM, KWSO.